This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the library. Thanks for coming. Um, this uh, event today is our final event in our One Book, One College series on Suds Turkle's Working. Um, we're talking about food um, and the economy in agriculture, so it's only slightly, it's a kind of a tangent to the book. We're not talking about the book itself. Um, it's good to see students here, econ students, business students, yeah, okay, good. Um, one thing I would ask is if you do have a 12.30 class and you have to get up and leave, try to do so quietly and respectfully for people that are going to stick around for the entire program. Um, uh, it's my honor to welcome David um, Apadal to the library. Did I just butcher your last name? Pretty close. Sorry, I should ask. Um, David's a business economist with the Chicago Fed, so we're really excited to have him on campus that he, he's uh, given of his time to come out and share with us today. Uh, David holds a master's degree um, in statistics from the University of Wisconsin, and uh, he studied graduate economics at Southern Methodist University, which is in Dallas, um, which to me means he's very smart. So um, we appreciate his time. So if you would, round of applause, and uh, we'll get started. Thank you. Hi, I'm glad to be here today, and I, it's my first time on your campus, so it's been fun to kind of see what's happening down in this neck of Cook County and Chicagoland. I will try to link things in a little bit to the book working because certainly the first section there where it talks about a farmer by the name of Pierce Walker from Indiana, he, he's got some good insights into what's been happening in agriculture over the last um, several decades, even though this was written many year, or years ago, it still is pertinent today. And before we kind of get into the main presentation, I wanted to give you an example of a situation that I heard about in northern Iowa. I don't know if any of you have heard about Norwegian bachelor farmers. Is that something any of you are familiar with? But it's kind of a, you know, it's a character that you can read about in various locations in um, literature. But the Norwegian bachelor farmers, one of them was my um, great uncle, and he had a friend who decided he wanted to do something different. You know how farming today in many areas has kind of become corn and soybeans. You know, that's all you do on some farms. You don't have livestock anymore. But he decided he wanted to start working with chickens because chickens, are, actually, if you didn't realize this, Iowa is the number one producer of eggs in the United States. So they've got a lot of chickens in Iowa. And... So he, he bought some baby chicks and took them out to his farm, and they all died. And he came back into town a week later, and he's like, you know, I need some more baby chicks because, you know, they didn't work very well. So he went back, and he had, you know, more baby chicks, and they all died too. So he's, you know, the, the guy in town starting to wonder, you know, what's really happening? Why, you know, I'm selling you all these baby chicks, but you keep killing them. What, what's going wrong? And so then the Norwegian bachelor farmer comes back and he says, um, I can't decide whether I'm planting them too deep or too far apart. And, of course, what do you do with baby chicks? You don't plant them. You, you know, feed them and have them in a house and everything. So this guy, he, he, he hadn't learned his lesson. But I like to tell that because it highlights a few different things about agriculture today and kind of how it's changed. You know, it used to be that you did have these integrated farms like um, are mentioned in the working book where, you know, he had some animals as well as corn and soybeans. But now farming's become very specialized. It's really kind of focused in on, you know, you, you have to be very good at what you do in order to be able to survive. And so that's like many, many industries in the United States. But certainly um, Another aspect that I think is becoming very important is that farmers need to really try new things. They can't just stay kind of with what they've been doing because they're going to get left in the dust. So a farmer has to try new things, but he can't just, you know, do it haphazardly. He really has to learn and know what he's doing in order to be able to succeed at it. And so that entrepreneurship is something I wanted to highlight today because farming has had that over the generations and it's become even more important today like it has in so many industries that you need to be able to innovate, try new things and come up with new ways of working. So I wanted to highlight a few different things today. 
Um, first of all, I wanted to kind of start off talking a little bit about the Federal Reserve System and how that links in with agriculture, and then um, j just some interesting things about what's been happening in the overall economy as we're coming out of a very tough recession, and um, some of you might be looking to find work right now, and this will give you a little bit of an insight into what's been happening. Here is a map of the Federal Reserve System. It shows district number seven in the middle there around Chicago, the five-state region with all of Iowa and the northern parts of Illinois, Indiana, southern Michigan, southern Wisconsin. That's what we cover for our um, entity, the Federal Reserve System. The Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. is the headquarters kind of, and they oversee the entire system. But each individual um, bank of the 12 districts, like in Chicago and Minneapolis and all the other district banks are independent um, as well in terms of its function. Then you have what's called the Federal Open Market Committee, which is meeting in Washington this week, and they are the ones that kind of oversee the monetary policy for the United States, um, trying to make decisions about whether we need to have um, tighter monetary policy, which means um, it's harder to get loans or make it more easy, which is what we're currently in a situation where we want to have looser monetary policy to make it easier because economic activity um, fell so much. We had such a contraction and now we need to be able to try to help it expand so we make it a little easier with our monetary policy. And the main way we do that is through interest rates and that affects agriculture directly because there's a lot of capital and loans that are involved with agriculture today. You have to be able to borrow money for the, you know, all, uh, every farm has to be able to do that in one form or another. But then also the price level and the national income through the gross domestic product, those are important um, things that we try to monitor and help to um, keep the economy on an even keel and help it to keep growing, but at the same time not grow too fast and stoke up um, price problems through inflation. And then finally, exchange rates um, are indirectly affected by, you know, because the economy's working all together. It's not just an individual thing where you can isolate one aspect. So here's the main tool for monetary policy we've had through um, lowering the Fed funds target rate for interest in the United States. And you can see that over time it goes up and down, you know, based on whether we need to stoke the economy or to kind of draw it in a little bit because it's getting too hot. And in the last bit, we've had to lower the interest rate, which means we've been trying to help it get going faster because the last few years, as everybody knows, has been very tough. A lot of people have lost jobs. The economy's been shrinking. But that wasn't enough this time. We had to do something kind of different, which was called quantitative easing, where we expanded our balance sheet and about two years ago we had to help a lot of banks that were in trouble, various other organizations needed help or we were going to have some very serious repercussions on the economy. So we expanded our balance sheet dramatically, started a lot of new programs that have been gradually withdrawn over time. But now you can see that we're, we still have a much bigger balance sheet that's kind of that quantity of our, on our books has helped to give the economy more opportunities to grow. At the same time that we've been trying to help the economy go faster, prices have been kind of um, in line. If you look at the yellow line here, that's what we call the consumer price index, less food and energy, and that's kind of our baseline that we try to keep around 2 to percent or so because that is a little bit of growth in the, econ in the economy's prices, but not, you know, too much. It, it, it helps the economy to grow. But food prices have been much more volatile. Here you can see how they were up in 2007, 2008, and now they've been down below where they were a year ago in this year. So it's, um, you know, that hasn't happened since the 1960s. So it's been a very volatile situation. And one of the reasons for that is that prices of energy have been even more volatile. Now we see, you know, gas prices over $3 again. And, you know, last year they had fallen quite a bit. The year before that they were very high. You know, so we've seen a lot of um, ups and downs in prices in our economy. And that's made it hard for businesses to plan. But it's also made it so that, um, you, know, those, you know, those input costs for many businesses have forced them to adjust their, um, their way they operate given the, competitive environment. They can't necessarily raise prices. So overall inflation has been relatively stable, but um, their, their input costs have been skyrocketing at times and other times they've been going down. 
So anyway, what has ended up happening is with all the financial troubles in the United States and the input um, situation, the economy was faltering until the last half of 2009. We have had one of the worst recessions of our lifetimes, and that has now not officially ended, but it seems like the last two quarters you can see have been growing here, so we definitely are on an upswing in the economy right now. But it's not as fast a recovery as we've often had after a deep downturn. And you can see here that the expected recovery path in the green dotted line is below the last two major recessions in the United States. And that is reflected partly in the very terrible numbers in the labor market. Here you can see that employment has fallen by over 8 million in the last few years, and it's been kind of not falling as much recently, and actually we've had a couple of uh, months where we've had positive growth in employment, but um, overall it's still well below where it was. And here you can see how so many counties in the United States have had employment fall over the last few years. The red counties, that's fallen by more than 3%. The kind of um, rose counties, it's been 1% to 3%. And then um, if the county has green, it actually grew. So there were a few counties where there was growing employment, but overall um, it, it had been falling. And a lot of those counties where there was growth were actually counties with agriculture in them, you know, a heavy agricultural presence because agriculture has been one of the sectors that hasn't been hurt as much in this recession. It's had its ups and downs and some parts more up and than down or more down than up. But overall, agriculture has continued to um, grow during this period. The unemployment rate, however, has skyrocketed in the Midwest and in the U.S. overall. Here you can see how the Midwest is actually struggling a little more, especially with Michigan, where the auto industry has been hit very, very hard. And that's reflected also when you look at the different areas of the um, district in this Midwest area. Iowa has had relatively lower unemployment, whereas in Michigan, you can see by the red areas, that's the worst unemployment in the district. And Illinois and Indiana are kind of in between there. But when you look overall at the United States, it's kind of interesting that uh, many of the um, Areas out in California and the West Coast have had very high unemployment as well. And those areas often are related to the migrant labor. The, um, the agriculture out in California has been struggling a bit more because the dairy industry has been hurt. And then also you've had issues with um, water. So they haven't been able to grow as many crops these last few years. So this year they're really looking forward to being able to have more um, of the water brought in that they, that agriculture can use because they've had you know big rains and snows over this last winter so their reservoirs have been filling up so so hopefully some of those agriculture areas in California will be able to employ more people this year as they plant more f foods and you know harvest more of the fruits and vegetables that are especially um, grown out there because California is our number one agricultural state after all. So now let's think a little bit back to um, 100 years ago. In 1910, we had almost 14 million people in the United States that were agricultural workers. So you can see, you know, that there were a lot more farms, you know, about 6 million farms. And it was a very different situation. You had, um, you know, workers that you know, had smaller farms. You had to have more workers to get all of the work done on the farm because you, you didn't have a lot of machinery back then. And you had animals that were helping you with um, plowing, and so horses and oxen were still being used. And so it was a situation where it was very labor-intensive. It was a challenge to, you know, because you didn't have a lot of the things of modern life. You were very isolated on farms. It was a, it was a tough life in a lot of ways. But over time, as um, people, um, you know, as kids grew up, they moved to cities. And as the um, start of using more modern technology came in, there weren't as, you didn't need as many people on the farm. So the numbers started to drop. And over the century, um, you know, now you ended up with about 2 million farms at the end of that time and a lot fewer workers per farm with only about 3 million workers. So we had a big change in agriculture over the last 100 years in terms of the ability to produce a lot more with fewer workers in particular. And the work changed a lot. But um, I just wanted to highlight a couple of things here about 
the comments from the book um, Working by, that Studs Turkle took down. Farming, it's such a gamble. The weather and the prices and everything that goes with it. You don't have too many good days. It scares you when you see how many working days you actually have. You have so many days to get the crop planted and the same in the fall to harvest it. So it's definitely a risky occupation in a lot of ways, not just because of the weather, but also in terms of safety, working with heavy machinery, working with animals. They're, you never know exactly what they're going to do. They might kick you. Um, so you have to be careful. Um, it's definitely a challenge. Um, another quote, the number of farmers are getting less every day and just seems like it's getting worse every year. The younger ones aren't taking over. The majority of the people originated from the farm years ago, but it's been so long ago that the young ones don't realize anything about the farm, what goes with it, or anything like that, the gamble that the farmer takes. So there's been a huge change in agriculture and how we get our food over the last hundred years because it's become more processed. Um, we're spending our money in different ways too. Here is a chart that goes back about 50 years and it tells us how much we've spent of our personal consumption expenditures, you know, what you put out of your wallet, how much of that is going to food and energy and then combined is the yellow line. So I wanted to focus today on the red line and you look at about in the 1940s, about 30% of what people spent in the United States went to food. So in order to be able to feed their families, they had to spend you know, um, you know, most, you know, a third of a dollar approximately. And now we only have to spend about 15 cents out on a dollar on food in our lives because we've been able to um, make it more affordable. We are able to actually eat more. We can have a wider variety of foods. You know, we bring in foods from all over the world to have fruits and vegetables all year round. So we have a much more integrated, very um, advanced food system that is very, you know, it feeds us in ways that we're, you know, we couldn't really dream about 50, 100 years ago. So lots of variety. You know, we, we have McDonald's on every corner, it seems like. You know, we can eat out all the time. Um, we, we actually, you know, have uh, such a variety that we, we don't really even realize it. In, you know, in the United States, we just take it for granted um, compared to many other parts of the world. But that dollar we spend on food, not all of it goes to the farmer. A lot of it goes to the processors. And here you can see that the, you know, if you split it up by different parts, the farmer gets about 20 cents on the dollar. And then the labor bill for processing is almost 40 cents. And then you have packaging, transportation, depreciation, advertising. So that food dollar we spend goes to a lot of different people. It supports a lot of different jobs. It's not just farmers, but um, many people in Chicago with companies like Kraft and Sara Lee. We have you know, major manufacturers of food um, based right in this area. But I wanted to explore a little bit why agriculture is so important to our Federal Reserve District. And one of the reasons is it's kind of a backbone of the economy. There's a lot of other jobs and um, income that are generated through agriculture. And we do have some key farm states here in this district. And then, of course, it does impact our commercial banks and our stakeholders um, as a Federal Reserve Bank. Here you can see the five state region's output of some key agricultural products. Almost 50% of the corn for grain is produced in this area. There's 40% um, of the soybeans, over 40% of the hogs, almost 30% of the eggs, um, over 20% of the milk, with most of that up in Wisconsin, and then about 10% of the cattle in the United States. So a lot of agricultural production. and. At the same time that we have this huge um, share of output for agriculture and food in, the, in this area, we also have been seeing the economy change, um, kind of reflecting that down, long downturn in the number of farms and the size of farming um, in terms of workers. We've also had a you know, decrease in that district output um, uh, as a share of the overall economy. So, you know, as we spend fewer dollars on agriculture, we, we start spending more on other parts of the economy. Those parts of the economy r grow relatively. So it's only about 1%. So even though it doesn't seem like a lot, it's still a very key sector in many ways.
because you do have the farming and then you have farm inputs that add jobs and production and then the manufacturing and distribution. So that slice of the pie expands a lot when you start thinking about that agriculture is really um, you know, a key input to many other kinds of jobs and um, sectors of the economy. At the same time that agriculture has been shrinking, um, it, it, you know, life has gotten a lot tougher for some farmers. Um, some had to go out of business in the 1980s in particular. We had a real um, downturn in agriculture then because some got overextended and then there were problems with prices and land values started going down and they, they couldn't support the loans so the banks repossessed farms. And so um, you had a John Cougar Mellencamp had a you know a song about that. I don't know if many of you listen to his music today, but um, you know you know a lot of crying went on at that time and a lot of tough aspects. But in the last few decades, actually, farming income has been growing relative to other households in the United States, and you can see that back in the like in the late 1980s the farming income was less per household, but then um, it grew above the red line in the last couple decades. And at the same time that um, farming has grown in income, it's not really necessarily the agricultural side that's brought that about. You can see that the green at the top is the income from agriculture there, the farm earnings, and mo a vast majority of the earnings of a farm household today is actually off the farm. So off-farm jobs are very key for agriculture because it helps to support the families. And if we break that down a little bit, um, you can see that there are very large farms in the United States in many areas that are kind of dominating, over $250,000 in sales. So those farms are where most of the agriculture input or you know, production is in terms of the sales. And in the Midwest, we have a lot of that with corn and soybean production. But when you look at the smaller farms, that's where a majority of the farmers actually still live. Um, but, you know, they're not really truly farming for as their occupation anymore. So farms of less than $10,000 in sales actually lost a little agricultural income, but they often would be someone who is maybe a doctor, a lawyer, and they just live out in the country and they like to be what's it's often termed a hobby farmer. So you have that kind of farming that's going on, but then there's the middle farmers where they actually have, you know, they still want to produce agriculture, but they're kind of a middle-sized farm and they don't really have the size to produce as much farm income. So they take a job in town, maybe at a manufacturing plant, or maybe they're um, teaching school or something like that. So they can get benefits by getting medical insurance because that's been a huge issue for farmers. And it's only these large farms that are more than $250,000 in farm income that the, the, or gross value of product that where the majority of that farm income comes from, and that's only about 12% of the farms. So there's definitely been a big shift as farms have been moving from the small little farm that used to be dominant back 100 years ago now to much larger farms where you can actually have a family business where you may bring in a son or a daughter to help with the family business and then you keep it growing and you're able to um, get scales economies and that's a very important thing. So here you can see then where farming primarily is a principal occupation for um, the farmers. And, you know, the darkest blue areas are where it's 65% or more. And so in most of Illinois, it's around 40, 45%, it looks like. So um, about half of the farmers in Illinois probably are still really truly farming as their occupation, and the other half get a significant amount of their income from other kinds of jobs. And what... Uh, other kinds of jobs do they have? Here are a few of the different ones that we could think about. You have, um, you know, agriculture is the biggest slice here, which is kind of blue, but then you have manufacturing jobs, government services, finance, insurance, and real estate, and then construction and education. So a lot of different kinds of jobs that go into farm households. And here on the left, you have the operator, and on the right, you have the spouse. So um, both are broken out there by the um, USDA the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, 
that's kind of a quick look at some of the different changes in farming. And I wanted to look a little more in detail at where farmers earn their farm income. And here you can see real net farm income when we think about um, adjusting for inflation over time. Um, you know, as the dollar gains in value, it, uh, or get, you know, we lose value as inflation eats away at it. So then a dollar today isn't worth as much as a dollar was 50 or 100 years ago. Well, if you adjust for those changes, even still, we've had some of the very best years of agriculture in the last decade. Um, that five out of the ten years that it, it was in terms of its highest earnings. And that um, is reflected not only in um, the, the government payments, I guess I should point out here. Um, the government supports agriculture in a big way. And here you can see the benefit um, that farmers get. The black line on top of the white is what they get from the government. But that um, government's um, help from farming, for farming, um, varies a lot. And here you can see how in the middle parts of the country we get a lot more government help than they do, say, out in California, where um, fruit and vegetable production is the dominant um, kind of agricultural output, and they don't get nearly um, as much as the corn and soybean and sugar and cotton producers do here in the Midwest and the South and some of those areas. So that is one of the things that um, we have to be thinking about as a society, is farming the last welfare culture. That was uh, what the Chicago Tribune was thinking about 10 years ago. Um, agricultural policy in which the government favors some crops over others and re rewards rich and poor landowners alike more than working farmers drastically needs an overhaul. So we've been in that kind of a process over the last decade of different farm bills, and the new one that's going to be um, looked at in the next few years will probably have some big changes in the way that agriculture is supported by the federal government. But that's um, you know, just one of those aspects that we can look at um, if you think about the, you know, the actual market value of crops. Here we adjust for inflation and we can see corn and soybean prices were higher back in the 1970s, but then they've kind of been gradually going down. But then in the last few years, they kind of spiked up a little bit again, not to the levels of back in the 1970s, but they, you know, enough that, you know, crop production was very, very profitable the last few years. And that's been helpful for the farming sector. And a lot of the farmers were able to buy more land. Um, here you can see where we grow most of the corn for grain. The green areas are where most of that is grown in the United States, the corn belt. Um, here now is the soybean production. It's a little bit the same, but it also extends a little further north and a little further south along the Mississippi River. So that's a very key agricultural center, and our district is right in the middle of that. Um, a lot of farms only do corn and soybeans, like I mentioned now, in those areas. But a couple of other key sectors for the Midwest in particular, dairy is a huge sector for the Midwest, and that's been under a lot more pressure. You can see Wisconsin, um, you know, you always think of cheese heads for Green Bay. You know, cheese, you know, that's their big product there, it, and they do produce a lot of cheese in Wisconsin, and it's a you know, very valuable agricultural output. Um, but at the same time, California has a lot of dairies as well, and so it's, it's been... Um, you know, there's kind of been overexpansion of dairy, and as the recession has hit the um, restaurant industry and fewer people eat out, there's fewer um, um, sales of cheese, and so there's been kind of a loss of demand, and that's lowered prices for milk. And so it's been a big um, challenge for dairy farmers to survive during the last few years. A similar sort of thing has happened for hog and pig production, and here you can, you know, Iowa's the number one state for hogs, um, and so we have a lot in the Midwest, but at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of cutbacks with, um, you know, restaurants eating out, so less um, pork and, you know, high-quality pork that's been needed there. Similar thing with cattle, so um, hog and cattle prices had gone down, but now they've recovered a little bit. Dairy came back some, but it's still struggling a lot more relative to the other kinds of livestock. So those are a few of the um, key sectors in agriculture in the Midwest. And now I wanted to focus a little bit more on something that I do in particular, which is farmland values. And we actually produce something called the Ag Letter that covers 
farmland values for the Midwest. And I wanted to explain a little bit to you why this is such an important thing for food and agriculture, because it accounts for over 75% of the assets in the sector. So farmers, in order to be able to farm, need land. And in order to be able to buy land, they have to understand the prices and the, what's going on. And right now, um, it's been growing um, dramatically over the last decade. Um, it's something that affects the overall health of agriculture because to get loans, you often need to be able to have the collateral which uh, and the cash flow based on the f land that you farm. And here is, you know, kind of if you want to think about one thing that kind of gives a, you know, summary about how agriculture is doing overall in the Midwest, this chart shows it because this is the changes in land values over the last 30 years or 40 years now, I guess. And here you can see in the 1980s, they were going down quite a bit. So that was a really tough time for agriculture. Since then, it's been growing. In the last four or five years, it grew over 10% some years. And so agriculture was doing quite a bit better at that point. And at the same time, if you think about um, adjusting for inflation, you know, land values aren't to the same level they were back in the 1970s. Um, they're, they're, they're almost back to that level in the Midwest, but it, it, we had such a big drop in the 1980s, and it, it took a long time to recover from that in agricultural land values. But a few of the things that help to support land values are the stream of earnings from that land. How much the farmer can earn is based on you know, productivity and good yields. And then also non-farm investment, how much other sectors are impinging on farmland when you have you know, cities growing very rapidly like they were four or five years ago. Then you had farmland getting taken out of production and you know, houses were built on it. But now with the housing industry falling quite a bit, that isn't happening nearly as much. And you don't have a lot of farms being bought for the recreational value, hunting and fishing and um, you know, rural residences. A lot of people aren't able to do that right now now in the recession. But um, I want to you know, highlight a little bit about that stream of earnings from the land because farmers depend on that for their livelihood. And as they um, plant corn and soybeans in particular in the Midwest, you can see that they, for one acre of land, you're able to do almost twice or even more than twice with corn um, the output from you know, 60 years ago or 50 years ago because we've been able to use machines much more efficiently and new crops, you know, seeds, um, you know, the kinds of biotechnology that help us to you know, you know, in, in, you know, put more into a seed than just the seed itself, but also some of the protection from bugs and you know, some of the fertilizer and things like that that have really helped to um, push up our output of agricultural products. And here is another look at this from an overall agricultural point of view, not just from a crop farmer, but overall agriculture in the United States since the 1940s has grown two and a half times in terms of its output. So that's how we're able to, you know, be... You know, food is much more affordable today because we had, you know, you know, such a huge output from the same inputs, essentially. Here, the white line shows that inputs have changed a little bit, but relatively are about the same. And the main reason for that is we've had a huge substitution from labor, which, if you remember that chart where we had so many farms and now they were dropping, now, we, you know, people have, you know, one farmer can do so much more with a big John Deere tractor, and, you know, they're getting bigger all the time, and then you can plant and you know harvest much more efficiently, and so we have relatively um, you know a huge increase in output to our inputs. And here there were kind of two phases of that. Um, here uh, from 1948 to 1980, um, we had increases in inputs per worker as a key factor. But from 1981 through 2000 and you know the 2000s, most of it's from what we call total factor productivity, which is changing seeds, changing management techniques, just learning how to be able to do more with less. And it's been a, a huge improvement for the U.S. economy and the world, really, because we're starting to have lots of trade. If we just, um, you know, we produce so much food that if we didn't um, have another place for it to go in the United States, the prices would, you know, fall down and agriculture would be much different. But the world needs our food, and so about 9% of U.S. exports in 2009 were food and agricultural products. So a much bigger share of our 
agriculture is going overseas than other kinds of products here in the United States. And one of the things that's helped to support that is that the value of the dollar has been falling for about a decade with, you know, a little change um, about a year and a half ago, but it's pretty much down at a lower level, and that makes our products more affordable overseas. So the Chinese want to buy more of our soybeans because they're relatively priced lower for them. And so that's been an advantage to agriculture because our growth in agricultural products has been quite large in the last few years up until last year. Last year things were down with the worldwide recession, but it's going to pick up again this year. And a lot of jobs come from agricultural exports because you have to not only produce the agricultural products, but you have to move them to ports and ship them around the world. And so there's a lot of processing and trade jobs, especially as now our exports have become much more focused on high-value products like um, meats and um, finished products instead of just kind of raw agricultural commodities. So... This whole change has kind of been continuing over the last century, but if we just look at um, like the five-year period around 2000, you can see that a lot of rural areas were losing people. The very lightest areas in this map of the United States are counties that had out-migration, and the areas that were um, growing a little bit in rural areas are the kind of gr darker green areas. And so a lot of out-migration in Illinois and Iowa counties were losing people, and at the same time, their incomes in non-metro areas were falling behind um, U.S. average. It was, you know, trending down. So that's been a real problem for rural areas, and, you know, how does agriculture fit in there has kind of been a, a tough thing as agriculture was shrinking in terms of the number of people. At the same time, there are some key rural development implications I think we can draw from what we have observed in agriculture and the loss of people in rural areas and that, you know, agriculture really has been um, less the primary focus of many rural areas as manufacturing has come in small areas. But a lot of that manufacturing has been through manufacturing of food products. So that still is tied into agricultural feedstocks. And so that's been a bulwark for rural manufacturing. But now there's been kind of a change in the last decade. As we start to have more biotechnology, you know, the whole ethanol boom that happened a few years ago is something that's kind of shifting things around in agriculture and making um, these new industries becoming more vital and, and producing jobs that actually pay better than some of the traditional um, jobs do in rural areas. So it still can make, take advantage of rural locations, and the economics would dictate that there would be new jobs created in rural areas. But at the same time, it, it, it's a changing landscape that's going to be um, around. And so I think in some ways we're having what we might call back to the future of the Midwest. I imagine that most of you have seen the movie Back to the Future where, you know, you try to change things in the past and, and you know, get back to the future that you wanted. Um, but if we think 100 years ago again, you know, most of agriculture was organic. It wasn't called organic. It was just agriculture because that was all that people had. But there was, you know, it was mostly produced in local markets. You know, food wasn't transported all the way across the United States like it is or from world markets today as much. And then there was local production for um, agricultural inputs for different products. And you had transportation fuels that were from agriculture, um, animal feedstocks. Um, you even had, you know, something like butanol that was, you know, it's similar to ethanol, but it was being produced back a long time ago. And you also used agricultural products for medicinal uses. So there were a lot of things back 100 years ago that now we're kind of rediscovering that agriculture can do some of this for us. Um, agriculture has, you know, had a huge um, change towards organics. You've had over $21 billion of food retail sales from organic foods in the last um, in, in 2008, I guess that was. And so there are price premiums. People are willing to pay more for food that is grown without pesticides, with, you know, using more, more traditional techniques and not having um, genetically modified organisms. So that's one way that's been helping, but it can be especially good for farmers if they can combine that with direct sales and selling it directly to consumers because then you get more of that dollar. You know, you only get 20 cents on average for farming, but if you sell it directly to people, maybe you're getting 50% or more of that food dollar um, because it's so close to the sale itself. 
Here you can see the growth in organic foods in the last decade. It's been very, um, very dramatic, but it's still a relatively small part of U.S. food um, sales. You, you, not everybody buys their food at Whole Foods or other kinds of organic um, outlets. But there is a lot more direct sales, and um, relative to the east and west coasts, the Midwest has a lot more to gain there in terms of having direct sales, um, you know, in terms of farmers' markets and now community-supported agriculture. I don't know if any of you were reading about that, you know, they're going to be dropping off food um, at the tollways plazas here in the, mid in the Chicago area. So if you sign up to get a box of food every week from a farmer, um, you can actually go pick it up, you know, at, you know, one of the toll booth, um, tollway plazas, um, or, you know, even Aon Center in Chicago. There's a lot of new places that farmers are going to be bringing food so people can um, pick it up and not in a much more convenient way. At the same time, butanol is something that um, you know, used to be produced um, back when horses were pulling the carts instead of tractors and trucks. And, and so, um, you know, ethanol production has grown dramatically, and that's something that we can think about here. Um, I guess my charts are not quite in the sequence I thought, but, um, you know, ethanol production is growing dramatically. But at the same time, we're using a lot of biotechnology in our crops. Here you can see how um, a vast majority of Corn and soybeans now are produced with biotechnology and not using traditional seeds anymore. And why do farmers do that? Well, the main reason, 65%, because it increases their yield through pest control. And then another 20%, it decreases their pesticide costs. And then it also increases planting flexibility. So farmers have had to change the way they do business in order to be able to um, keep up with times and to keep their profits because otherwise they wouldn't be um, able to stay in business. So here's the ethanol plants. Um, you know, are they less attainable and desirable than a few years ago? We had a huge boom, and now you can see that there are ethanol plants surrounding all over the Midwest. And so corn is getting changed into something we put in our cars at a rapid pace. Um, but at the same time, it does produce better jobs. The ethanol industry's hourly wages are quite um, strong, especially for rural areas. And one of the ideas that is being tossed out for how agriculture is going to change even more in the future as we have this biotechnology and biomass crops, so we're going to be changing not just, um, you know, the way that we produce ethanol, but we're going to start to have more what's called cellulosic ethanol, where you take um, crop residue or grasses and you convert that into um, ethanol or other kinds of products that we can use in our industries and in our cars. Um, so you can make plastics out of um, agricultural products. So the traditional oil refinery is something that now we're kind of seeing um, an idea that where we have biorefineries, where we're able to use agricultural products as an input instead of oil and be able to produce a lot of the same variety of products that we can use in all different kinds of um, industries and not only produce food but also produce um, plastics and other chemicals and so there's a lot of different ideas that are you know being worked out and exactly how agriculture will look in the future is uncertain as we will still produce food we have to eat but at the same time there are some new ideas that you know maybe we'll be starting to use some of the plants with medicinal properties you know they can even grow tobacco in such a with things in it that we, they can process out to make medicines and so there are lots of um, interesting ideas out there but the focus really has to be on individuals that are entrepreneurs that are able to grow businesses and be able to um, lead us into a kind of a next era of agriculture as we've had this huge change as the number of workers in agriculture has shrunk and we need to come up with new ideas new innovations and um, be able to manage risk and create wealth as well as be able to um, use a 
um, resources efficiently and be able to come up with, um, you know, new economic activity that's going to make our lives better and be able to meet the needs of the world because there are, you know, the number of people in the world that are wanting U.S. agricultural products is growing as we have um, people in all parts of the world, you know, that have had higher income. They can then move up the scale and be able to buy more U.S. products as well as, you know, grow maybe more of their own. But the demand for food or high-value food items is, um, is growing dramatically. And agriculture has had a tradition of entrepreneurship. You know, you know, farmers have had to come up with new ways of doing things in order to be able to um, survive, and they've added value to their products. And so the business formation and competitive advantages are something that um, farmers have been good at, and they're showing new ways. You have, you know, new things like wineries and you know they're popping up all over the Midwest you have um, you know, organic foods and new kinds of meat you know you know what we would often think of as um, kind of old-style turkeys you know you know the heirloom it's called where you know the turkey is something that um, is like it was a hundred years ago more than the kind of more factory farming that we've done in the more recent years so there's job creation that can be done through these entrepreneurship and have regional organizations that are helping to revitalize rural America in many ways. And I think this kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of changes that have happened to labor and agriculture and food production over the last hundred years, but they're going to continue. You know, we, life isn't just static. We're having, you know, the economy's not static. It's going to be changing and, and going with the times to be able to meet the needs of the world and of our own lives. So I hope that was uh, something you could relate to some of the um, charts, and I hope that wasn't too much too fast, but I would be happy to um, answer any questions and stick around and talk with you individually if you'd like that as well. Any questions? Yes. Well, obviously one that's one negative effect that we've heard a lot about right now has been obesity issues in the United States. How um, you know you know people can get too many calories too easily, and so that's been a, a health concern. Um, certainly, um, the mix of foods we eat is not as healthy as it should be because certain foods maybe have gotten too much government support, um, so we end up having more sugar um, than maybe we should in our diets and not enough of other kinds of foods that are more healthy. Um, fresh fruits and vegetables are, aren't as um, positive. So um, there's been some market distortions because of the low food prices. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, th I think we've benefited overall. It's, um, you know, the, but we, we, we do have some areas we can adjust. Yeah. Well, it, it, that definitely has been a long-term trend. The mega farms, you know, has become a kind of a popular punching bag um, for some of the media. But at the same time, um, I mean, the medium and smaller farmers, um, in order to survive, they really have to become entrepreneurs and maybe find a niche. Um, and a lot of have moved into organic kind of products where you get a higher price per unit and then you're able to, you know, if you come up with something no one else sells, you, you, you know, and people want to eat that kind of a special food, you, you know, you have better flavor, you have, um, you know, maybe health properties from your products. So you, you have to be innovative and find those kind of areas if you're going to survive as a smaller farmer um, because certainly um, overall farming has had to grow bigger in order to be able to um, meet the needs at a cost that people will pay. Definitely a challenge for, um, you know, there's been a lot of change. And, and maybe I didn't um, 
highlight that enough that, you know, in the midst of all these changes, there are real people out there living and trying to survive, and a lot of them, you know, are, aren't able to do it. It's very tough for some families because, um, you know, that maybe they aren't as innovative as someone else, and they, 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 they try to just kind of stick with what they do, and, and then it's um, not going to um, end up, you know, maybe they'll have to sell their farm eventually. Yes? I don't know that that will ever happen. Um, biotechnology has a lot of benefits, and it can lead to energy independence for the United States. But um, in order to be able to go 100% that way, it, it would, you know, we wouldn't be able to produce enough food probably. So that's one of those tensions right now. You know, the last few years, a lot of people blamed bio, you know, ethanol production for why we had high food prices for a while. And you know, and some of those things work out um, over time as the economy kind of works through issues. But, um, you know, if we, you know, what, um, there's a goal of 25% of U.S. energy production by the year 2025. Um, there's a group called 20 by 25 that's trying to get just a quarter of our energy into um, biofuels and biotechnology, wind, and even that's going to be a big challenge. So I, I don't know that... Um, over time, maybe we'll have to come up with new ideas like, um, you know, fusion and other, you know, there'll, there'll be other ways of creating energy, but um, certainly um, bioenergy will be a big part of it, I think, a bigger part. Sure. Well, they have been cracking down, and you know, you might have read about some plants where they've had raids, and you know, people start running and try to get away. Um, but it depends a lot within, you know, what sector of agriculture you're talking about. Crop and, you know, crop producers um, in the mid. Right. There's a lot there, um, and I think we really need to have some immigration reform because. To, you know, if we wanted to pay, you know, a lot more for our agricultural products, then, yeah, go ahead and crack down. And, you know, and, but the U.S. consumer isn't going to support that. So it's one of those things where they, they say they don't want to, you know, have illegal aliens working, but at the same time, they're a vital part of our economy. We need them in a lot of ways to be able to support our agricultural system. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where, the U.S. government has to find a way to um, accommodate reality. You know, the, the, the U.S. government needs a reality check, and uh, people need to understand that, um, you know, the economy functions in a way that we can't just um, chop off a hand in order to, in order to be able to um, try to get meet a political goal, I guess. So anyway, that's. You know, you're right. It's a big issue for especially food um, for certain parts of agriculture. Any other questions? I'll be around if you um, want to. Oh, one more. Certainly, I mean, when we talk about externalities, there are a lot of those associated with um, agriculture in some ways, um, and there are those health issues and environmental issues um, that need to be thought about more completely, and I think they're not necessarily as, um, as bad in agriculture, you know, in terms of um, certain sectors as others, so definitely um, that... You know, we, we have to think about what's happening, you know, to produce that amount of food that we can get at a certain price. And, you know, government payments and 
those kind of distortions are part of you know how we end up with that um, low cost of food as well so there are a lot of issues to be resolved there thank you all right thank everyone for coming and have a good day Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.